As the uh, kids make their way down to Children's Church, I want to begin this morning by telling you, um, ahead of time, this is going to be a little bit of a word dump. And uh, what I mean by that is I'm getting ready to share a lot of information. And I will provide context for that information as I share it. But I wanted you to know that as we began, that there's going to be a lot of introductory information this morning. And I trust that by the time we're done, you will have understood why and that it would fit into our context and help us have a better understanding this morning. But I want to begin by referencing an article that I found on Legionnaire Ministries' website that defines a worldview this way. It says, a worldview is an overall view of the world. That's profound, isn't it? It goes on to say, it's not a physical view of the world, but rather a philosophical view, an all-encompassing perspective on everything that exists and that matters to us. In other words, your worldview is the means whereby which you view everything. Everything that you interact and engage with is shaped, how you feel about that interaction or that engagement is shaped by whatever your worldview is. And as we consider that this morning, I want to submit what I believe is the most important thing to know and understand about worldviews. There are exactly two options. Option number one is God's word shapes your worldview. And option number two is man shapes your worldview. Or we might just say everything else. So everybody has a worldview, and everybody's worldview is shaped by one of two things. What God's word says, we would call this a biblical worldview, and anything else. Those are the only two options. Literally, everything that you believe will be run through the spectrum of what forms that belief system. And for the Christian, as I've alerted to, alluded to, there is the Word of God. And I want you to know this morning that I unashamedly believe that for anyone who professes to be a follower of Christ, the Word of God must be. The Word of God, if you are a professing believer in Jesus, the Word of God must be what forms and shapes and informs your worldview. For the follower of Christ, the Word of God serves as the final authority on all matters. All matters, whether we like or particularly don't like what the Word of God says in terms of a situation or a circumstance. In no way does that negate the Word of God as the determiner of what is a godly worldview. And I want you to further understand that if you profess to be a believer and you profess to hold a biblical worldview, that at the very moment, that fast, you are driven by anything other than God's word, you have compromised on your worldview, and it is no longer a biblical worldview. There's not a lot of wiggle room between what the word of God says and everything else. When decisions about what is right and wrong, what is true and false, are shaped by what we think, 
what we feel or what we believe apart from God's word, we now hold a non-biblical worldview. So in anything other than the word of God is a determining factor in what shapes your belief system, you no longer have a biblical worldview. You now have something else. And as I prepare to say what I'm getting ready to say, I want to say this, I don't know, maybe caveat is the right word. Um, I'll explain some of this in a few minutes so that it makes sense to everybody, but I want you to understand that I believe that there is no realm in the church today that is more under, of a, under attack in terms of worldview than the realm of sexuality. And if you're with us this morning, and, and maybe this is your first time here, maybe you've been here a bunch of times, but it's just kind of part of what you do I would ask you, as I just told you, hey, we're going to discuss sexuality today from our pulpit. I would ask you to stick with me and give me a chance to share with you what the Word of God says. Because I understand that this is a tough, tough reality and issue. As I've said, I believe that it is the most significant realm under attack when it comes to a biblical worldview. is the realm of sexuality. I also want to share with you this morning, if you're visiting with us, or maybe you've only heard me preach a time or two, maybe you don't know me very well, I want to reiterate as we begin this morning, I am not angry. I'm very passionate, I'm very intense, but I'm not angry this morning. I'm sad. I'm heartbroken by the realities of the church's willingness to say, this is biblical sexuality, you can have it. Redefine it. Do whatever you want with it. Make a a mess of what God has declared so clearly. And now the church is suffering under the weight of it. Now pastors who believe, like me, who believe in the authority and the sufficiency of the word of God have to step into a pulpit with fear and trepidation of what the consequences might be for proclaiming the word of God. This makes me sad. This makes me sad. And this conversation around sexuality has become a very difficult one to have. And partly because, primarily because I believe the church has failed in having this conversation in many ways prior to now. Many of you know I was recently attending a master's class. And one of the comments that was made in that master's class by the professor, he said, you know, it's been the, the history in the church where something would come under attack and, and the world would seek to redefine it. And the church's response would be to basically run from it. So instead of when the assault on biblical sexuality began, instead of the church standing up and saying, this is what the word of God teaches, and we will stand firm on the word of God, and we will proclaim the truths of the word of God, but we will do it with love and with grace and with mercy and with compassion, the church said, well, we can't talk about it. And the church abandoned its position and its stance on the authority of the word of God in all manners of life, including the arena of sexuality. And I believe that the church is now suffering under this reality. And many churches 
have begun or are only having these conversations on sexuality now because they can no longer put the conversations off. We got we to gotta land somewhere. We have to stand for something. And I absolutely believe a day is coming when churches are going to have to give account to their belief on sexuality and whether or not that belief will be formed uh, through the, the lens of what Scripture teaches or anything else. Remember, those are our two options. I believe the church must make it its aim to uphold God's Word without making the conversation simply about people who have a different view than we do or that have a different view than the biblical view. The church cannot and must not be plagued by an us-versus-them mentality. People who hold a view of sexuality outside of what the Word of God has defined are not the opposition. They're not the enemy. They are not a task to be conquered or a, a battle to be won. People who operate outside of a view that is shaped of the world from the word of God, they don't need to be won in victory. They need to be redeemed by grace. And the church has either been silent or just condemned people to hell. We don't have that authority. It's not our place. And we'll talk in a few minutes about what our place is and what that should look like. But some of you may be sitting here this morning, and as I share all of this and I I give this introductory information, you might be asking the question, why now, Pastor Jay? Why now? You said you believe it's time. Why, Why now? Well, I made mention of a new law in Canada a few weeks back that was set to go into effect in Canada. And by now, that law is, in fact, in effect. And as was as of January 8th. Now, if you don't know what that law is, let me tell you. And if you were here when I made that statement, let me give you a little more information in terms of what we're talking about. <clears throat> so I want to try to bring some clarity to this law that has been passed in Canada that bans conversion therapy. And for further clarification, conversion therapy, according to Bill C-4, that's what this bill in Canada was called, It's described as the following, a practice, treatment, or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, to change a person's gender identity to cisgender, change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth, repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior, repress a person's non-cisgender gender identity, or repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to the person at birth. And chances are, if you're like me, when you heard me the first time I read that, I thought, what? That seems very broad. This bill also includes the following statement. Heterosexuality, cisgender gender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions are a myth. There is legislation that has been passed and is now recognized as law in Canada that says any attempt to use the word of God... 
to help somebody see what the expectation of what has been given to us and understood and accepted for thousands of years as uh, the, the standard is given by God is now not only said you cannot do that, it's punishable by time in jail, and we're going to see that, but heterosexuality as a preferred way of life is a myth in Canada. It's a myth. If you don't know what the word uh, cisgender means, it just means to basically identify uh, as the gender that you were given at birth. And so you notice that 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 was a long paragraph, and that was very broad, and there were a lot of things in that. But it continues. Everyone who knowingly causes another person to undergo conversion therapy, including by providing conversion therapy to that other person, is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than five years. Similarly, everyone who knowingly promotes or advertises conversion therapy is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than two years. As sure as I stand here and you sit there in Canada, if you use the word of God as your standard of authority and you counsel with the word of God, it is punishable by law. I just want that to sit for a second. The legal authorities in Canada now arrest, fine, and imprison people for standing upon the truth of the Word of God. We're not talking about Africa. We're not talking about the Middle East. We're talking about Canada. And at this point, you may be thinking, but that's Canada. Why does that concern us. Well, in response to this new law in Canada, many of you would remember the pastor, James Coates, who was arrested last year, and um, it became a very uh, a prominent story, both in and out of the United States of America, of this Canadian pastor who had been arrested for refusing to close his church, and, uh, and, and we, we talked about it here, and we prayed for the man and his family, but what's interesting is this same man, Pastor James Coates, it's his church. Uh, there's an elder from his church that had, had penned a letter to John MacArthur at Grace Community Church in California. And Grace Community Church is the umbrella under which the Master's Seminary uh, began and operates. Pastor James Coates is a graduate of Master's Seminary. So now we have the connection, okay? And one of the elders from Pastor James Coates' Coates church had penned a letter to John MacArthur, basically informing them of what was transpiring in Canada and what the response of the churches in Canada that believed in the authority of the word of God was going to be. And what he did was he encouraged Dr. MacArthur to encourage others to join with Canadian churches today, January 16th, in solidarity. Bible-believing churches in Canada are preaching today in regards to God's design of sexuality, and because at Dale Bible Church, we also believe the Word of God to be true, we want to stand in solidarity with those in Canada to proclaim that the Word of God is the final authority on all matters, not just sexuality. We stand today in solidarity with brothers who are proclaiming at the risk of being arrested. Today is January 16th. That means the law became active eight days ago. 
But even still, the sentiment might exist this morning. But that law is in Canada. Do we really need to stand in solidarity with them? What if I told you that long before Canada made this a law in our own country, laws and ordinances were in place along these same lines? Did you know that in 2012, the states of California, New York, New Jersey, and Nevada all passed bills that banned what they called, it's what they call it, gay conversion? Now, before I go on, I want to I back up because I want to make sure that I, 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 I give enough attention to this reality of conversion therapy. I want to reiterate, and I know I said this, but I want to reiterate it. What, what, what's being labeled as conversion therapy is, is the reality that word of God, the word of God has communicated truth. And if somebody comes in Canada right now, if somebody came to me in Canada and said, uh, I've, I've got this or I've got that, and, and I, I, I don't want to struggle with this reality. Can you help me with that? If a Canadian pastor opens the word of God to say this is the source of how we overcome some of these, these, uh, the, the, the things that you say you're struggling with and you want to grow through and you want to overcome, he's punishable. it's punishable by law. If you've ever counseled somebody with the word of God in the arena of sexuality, now it is against the law. It's criminal in Canada. That's, that's what we're dealing with here. And furthermore, as we've seen in 2012, it's also punishable by crime or as a crime in California, New York, New Jersey, and Nevada. Did you know that as sure as we sit here this morning, that there is an ordinance before a city council in the United States of America to outlaw conversion therapy as part of the counseling process of a teenager? But I do want to pause for just a moment and and share with you what's not illegal. So if somebody comes to me, if I live in Canada and other places in the United States, if somebody came to me and said, let's say they're 17 years old, and they came to me, And they said, I was born a girl, but I would like to be a boy. I can counsel them to become a boy in whatever way I see fit. I can give them all of the resources at my disposal. I can give them all of the things that I know and have been made aware of that can help them convert from a girl to a boy. But if a girl comes to me and says, I should probably use say a boy. If a boy came to me and said, I, I, I believe that the word of God is true and that my gender was assigned to me at birth, but I'm struggling with some of these things. Pastor, can you help me? If I use the word of God, that's a crime. Does anybody see the dichotomy and the hypocrisy here? I'm free to counsel you with every resource available to me if I'm counseling you to the progressive agenda. But if I'm counseling you to the standard of truth and morality, I can't use what gets us there. So what if I told you that this ordinance was sitting in a city council room waiting to be voted on in the United States of America? You might be tempted to say, well, that's what happens in progressive or liberal states, right? Like, we've, we've come to expect those things. And you would be right. We do. But what if I told you that the city just referenced actually is not in a progressive state? What if I told you that it is, 
in a state that identifies as conservative? What if I told you that the state was very close to home? What if I told you that the state was the very state where its residents are referred to as Hoosiers? What if I told you all of those things? Would that create the need to address it from our pulpits? Because the state of Indiana, Tippecanoe County, West Lafayette is the city. There is a bill sitting right now to be voted on in February to outlaw using the word of God to counsel teens. Saying Canada. As Dorothy would say, we're, we're not in Canada anymore. We're at home. What shapes your worldview? And maybe you're not sure this morning, but I want to share something with you. If your sentiment this morning is, well, then don't use the word of God to counsel people. I will unashamedly tell you, your worldview is not biblical. You abandoned that somewhere along the line. If you had it at some point, you've abandoned that. It should strike to the core of who we are to know not just in Canada, in liberal states, not just in our state, but just period in general, the word of God is under such attack that in our own backyard, there very well may be laws being passed, which by the way, when this ordinance was brought to the forefront, it passed unanimously prior to being voted on. There's not a lot of resistance in Indiana to this reality. Does that matter to you? Does that affect you? It affects me. It matters to me. And it shouldn't matter to anybody who believes that the word of God is the truth and the authority on all matters of life. And so I ask a very simple question this morning. What is the next step for the church in reclaiming biblical sexuality? What do we do as a church? Well, I want you to understand we recognize the authority of God's word. And we commit to God's word on the final authority or as the final authority on matters of sexuality. But again, I want to make sure that I continue to reiterate and include in this reality on all matters. We're really good at saying, well, I don't have any issues with that whole sexuality thing right now, so I'm good. I'm going to set it on cruise control. But we commit to the word of God as the final authority on all matters, and in our context this morning, on matters of sexuality. And when we think about this reality of sexuality and and gender gender and, and identity and conversion, I want to share one verse with you. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it because by the time you get there, I'll be done reading it. But the church must commit God's word, commit to God's word as the final authority. In Genesis 1.27, we read this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God created man in his own image, the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. Now, we won't stop here, brothers and sisters, but I want you to understand something. The matter is settled. 
God made them in his image. In the image of God, he made them male and female. You see, the authority on matters of sexuality is the authority comes from God because God is the originator and the author of mankind. And God's word tells us that he created them male and female. There's much to know and to understand about this truth, but first a word of caution as we approach this subject. See, God's word claims to be truth. 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17 says, All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. So, To be breathed out by God is to be given by God as a full representation of what God believes or of what God has set in motion. It's to be understood to be fully without error in its original manuscripts and is fully sufficient for everything. And being God-breathed is fully true and authoritative. Literally, God through himself and his word has given everything that pertains to life and godliness. And here's something I believe we must take note of this morning. God's word is either all truth or it is no truth. I don't know what your approach to the word of God is this morning, but if it's somewhere between all truth and no truth, it's no truth. There is no middle ground It's either all truth or no truth. And so this speaks back to our opening as we began our conversation this morning talking about terms of a a worldview. God's word is either truthful in all situations and circumstances or it is not. It cannot be both. In claiming to be absolute truth, if there is even one tiny area where the word of God is not truth, the whole thing ceases to be truth. I I trust you understand what I mean when I say that. If this claims to be 100% true, and then in any area is not true, it no longer ceases to be true. And it's not reliable for anything. Because what else isn't true? So we have the responsibility to study and to determine that the Bible is what it says. It's the authoritative self-given, self-proclaimed word of God to mankind that we might know God, that we might know what he thinks, that we might know what he expects, that we might know what his heart is for mankind, that we might grow in appreciation of his grace and his mercy, but also his holiness and his justice and his righteousness. And I would further submit to you this morning That in the arena of whether or not God's word is absolute truth or no truth, this is a matter of salvation. Because I I would just simply ask you, if you say, well, you know what? I don't really think the word of God is all true. But I'm a believer, so you don't believe that the word of God is true, but you believe the necessary elements for salvation, such as a man was born of a virgin took on flesh, lived as a man, he was sinless, perfect, that he was crucified unjustly under the weight of an evil Roman empire, and that three days later, he got up out of the grave, and as we sang this morning, he is alive. Do you believe that part? But you don't believe any, there's other things you don't believe or you don't think are right or are truth? It's usually the other way around. 
Well, people would say, I can't believe the supernatural, but I can believe the other stuff. I would submit that the authority of God's word is a matter of salvation. It's authoritative and it's accurate in all arenas. And I also want to point out, as we reference Genesis 1.27, it's common for people to suggest that the Old Testament doesn't matter. Ah, that's old and outdated. It doesn't, doesn't really matter. Jesus didn't say anything about homosexuality or didn't really speak to God's design for sexuality in the New Testament. Now, first, I want you to understand that the Old Testament does matter. And Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 5, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's the whole Old Testament, as they would have known it in his context. You had the law, the first five books, and the prophets. That encompassed, that encompassed the books of prophecy and the writings. He said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it's all accomplished. See, Jesus didn't come to undermine and do away with the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. And Jesus is communicating that he is that fulfillment of all of the things that the Old Testament pointed to. Not just the reality of a coming Messiah, but also the reality of, you think about the Old Testament sacrificial system. They sacrifice these animals as a means of, a, of atonement. So Jesus is coming and he's saying, I'm the fulfillment of all of those things. I'm the sacrifice. I fulfilled what the sacrificial system pointed to. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus' death once and for all atoned for sin. Unlike the Old Testament sacrificial system where animals were sacrificed over and over, year after year, to atone for sin. So Jesus, he placed authority on the Old Testament. But Jesus actually also directly quoted our very verse this morning, Genesis 127. And so during his earthly ministries, he's quoting this, this scripture, as we call it again, Genesis 127. There's no way to diminish the intended impact and influence that the Old Testament had on Jesus and his ministry. We cannot detach the New Testament from the Old Testament. And in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus, he's responding to a question about divorce, and he reinforces his belief in the original design of mankind and for sexuality. And I remind you, Genesis 1.27 said, in, uh, God created them in his image. In the image of God, he created them. He created them male and female. Jesus held this position too. And so we have this work of God where the pinnacle of his creation comes to be. And God's creative genius and everything that he made, he made nothing that was like the man that was made in his image. Mankind is the only thing made in the image of God. And this means that mankind is the only thing that has the capacity to relate to God and his communicable attributes such as life, personality, truth, wisdom, holiness, and justice. Nothing else can relate to God in that way except for what was made in his image, mankind. Mankind is the only thing that was made to have spiritual fellowship with God. 
And this is all a result of being made in his image. When God made mankind, male and female, he created two halves that are complementary one to another. And it's interesting that the first mention of being made in God's image is the fact that he made them male and female. That's the very first biblical truth that's attached to being made in the image of God. The image of God was made male and female. And God gives them a command to the pinnacle of his creation, to his new creation. He gives the command, they share his image, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. God literally calls the male and female to procreation. And this points to the exact reason that God created them male and female and as the only means to fulfill God's command to rule over the earth and to be fruitful. God created in his image mankind, male and female, distinct yet equal. Okay, let's throw that one out there too. This is not an inferiority thing. Women are not inferior to men. And if you've been taught that, told that, especially in the name of Christ, I will apologize for whoever taught you that. Because women are not inferior to men. But men and women were created with very distinct purposes and roles that are different one from another. And so to commit to God's word as the authority on the matter of sexuality is to believe in the created order. It's to believe that gender is something that is determined at birth, not after. And I want to, I'll say again, at the, at the risk of being redundant, I'm not mad at anybody. I, I'm not up here with an axe to grind. It is not me against someone else, or it's not me against somebody's thought process. I just want you to understand that in the best way that I know how, with grace and with mercy, I want to communicate what I have sworn to communicate. And I don't mean that like I took an oath, but I just mean it's my responsibility to communicate God's word as truth and as authority in all matters. And that's my aim. And that's what I desire to do. So don't don't mistake me saying this is what the word of God says and therefore I believe it. And I believe there's sufficient reason and evidence to believe this as me saying I hate anybody. I don't. And I'll get to this in just a minute, but I don't believe sexual orientation or gender identification are ever a reason to mistreat someone. But you know why the church has a reputation for mistreating people who they don't agree with? Because the church is really good at mistreating people they don't agree with. And so if we're going to reclaim biblical sexuality, we must commit to take a stand upon the word of God as the final authority. And I want to give you two applications of that. And the first application is in light of the situation where laws are being passed. How do we respond to the government as they move and as they pass laws in realms or in regards to this arena of sexuality? Now, I want to make something very clear. I do not believe that responding to the government in matters whereby we hold the word of God as the authority is a license to be belligerent. 
Understand? We've not become belligerent ding-dongs. We're not belligerent for the sake of belligerence, but we're saying, I will stand upon the truth of God's word as the truth that it is. And a great example of this is found in Acts chapters 3 and 4. And we're not going to turn there for the sake of time. I'm going to have to give you the information, the context. But I would encourage you to go back and read Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter... Actually, I would encourage you to start in Acts chapter 1 and read at least through chapter 4. At some point, maybe today or this week. Read it throughout the course of the week. But read Acts 1 through somewhere between 4 and 5. But what we're introduced to in chapter 3 is a man who's been lame for over 40 years, and he's healed by Peter and John. And at the amazement of the people, Peter has this opportunity to preach, and this opportunity was similar to the opportunity that Pastor Aaron looked at last week in Acts chapter 2. Where Peter preaches and he proclaims that Jesus is the Messiah. And we saw that on that day, we call it the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon the church, that 3,000 souls were added to the church that day. 3,000 people trusted Christ. And so as we move out of chapter 3, and as we move into chapter 4 of the book of Acts, we find that the religious leaders and the civil authorities come to Peter and John and they arrest them for preaching the gospel. Luke would tell us in verse 5 that on that day about 5,000 souls were added to the church. So Peter is preaching wide open and people are hearing and believing and being saved. And so as you continue to move through chapter 4, what happens is these men, they get addressed by the council, the religious leaders. In Acts chapter 4 verse 7 it says, and when they had set them in the midst... So these civil authorities and these religious leaders, they literally, in the midst of all of the people, in the midst of the court of public opinion and civil opinion, they put these two men. And they say to them, by what power or by what name did you do this? Referring to the healing of the lame man. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders... If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And when they get done preaching, Luke writes for us in Acts 4 that the men hear Peter preach, and you know what their perception of them is? They've been with Jesus. These were ordinary men, but these were not ordinary men. And so they charged them in. After conferring one with another, they, they charged them to stop preaching the gospel. You're all done, Peter. John, no more. Cut it off. In Acts chapter 4, verse 18 and following, we read this. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. 
Peter's response to the command to subvert the authority of God's word was very simply, no. No. Whether you think it's right or not, civil authorities in first century Israel, whether you think it's right or not, you can decide. But we will preach the truth. For the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Peter insisted that they would continue to preach as they had been commanded to do by Jesus himself. To stand for biblical truth is a must for the church. The church must stand for and protect and practice the authority of the word of God in all areas of our lives. You see, God, when we, anytime we talk about the government, we understand that God, the word of God talks about government. And God's design for government is it would operate under his authority, not from outside his authority. And so when the government begins being given to worldly agendas and humanistic ideas, humanism, it's a worldview, not biblical, humanistic. When it's given to this humanistic worldview, the church has to say, no. We will proclaim truth. But I think the last thing may be of most importance this morning. Because I think this is where the most damage is actually done uh, and when we think of Christ and the cause of Christ in regards to the issue of sexuality. How do we respond to individuals in matters of sexuality? How do we respond to individuals in these matters? I want you to know something right away as we begin this portion. The issue of sexuality in regards to dealing with individuals should be approached from the perspective of grace, love, and compassion, and nothing else. Do not excuse or do not uh, misinterpret that as permission or license, but as grace, compassion. I would submit to you that dealing with individuals is much different than dealing with the government. You see, the government is an organizational entity that's made up of people. But the government in and of itself, the institution government, cannot be redeemed. The people who make up the government could be redeemed, whereby hopefully taking that governmental structure and making it a redeemed one, one that promotes and advances the truths of God's word, But we deal with individuals differently. Why? Because unlike a governmental structural system, individuals are in need of salvation. They're in need of redemption. You see, our call to worship this morning began with, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? You see, this is not limited to issues of sexuality, but to sin. I got to be honest with you this morning. The number of times that I've heard people reference 1 Corinthians 6 as, in, in terms of sexuality is probably a thousand to one the number of times I've heard it referenced in terms of drunkenness. But that's interesting to me. Because Paul says, when he includes these things, do you not know that the unrighteous 
And then he does walk through that. But it's not limited to issues of sexuality, but of sin. Working with someone in areas of sexuality is about what God's word defines as sin. In my time of ministry and dealing with people, the, we treat sins of sexual nature. And I understand that sins of sexual nature, they're, they're, there's all kinds of passages of scripture we work through, we talk about, they're very detrimental. They are, I'm not denying that. But we treat them differently than we treat everything else. Nobody comes to us and says, I'm struggling with alcoholism or drug abuse, and we try to make them quit and then help them see their need for Jesus. No, we try to help people see that the truth of God's word and the message of salvation that's offered through God's grace and God's mercy is the means to have victory over the sin of drunkenness and drug use, idolatry, whatever it is. But when it comes to sexuality, we're like, you must stop that. Then you can come to Jesus. I don't understand this. Because Paul, now he, he, he sifts through it, but they're all the same thing. They're unrighteousness. You see, the church, when it does try to take a stand on things, it takes stands on the things that it most is disturbed by. Not just unrighteousness. Are we as passionate about all forms of unrighteousness as we are about the forms of of sexual unrighteousness? As Paul says, all unrighteous people do not inherit the kingdom of God. And I believe that the most important part of the verse, it gets lost in the shuffle most of the time. And Paul, as he starts writing there, he, he reminds the Corinthians some of the sins that, that defined their lives, sexually immoral, drunkard, idolaters, homosexuals. But then Paul says, such were, such were some of you. But they're no longer defined by these lifestyles or these sinful habits. Why? Because of the work of Jesus Christ. Paul says that they were washed, they were sanctified, they were justified in the name of Christ. To be justified is to be declared righteous. Do you see it? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, period. I don't care what it is, period. But through Christ you're declared righteous. There's a difference. And Paul says that through faith in Christ and his victory, we sang about being alive because he is alive. That song we sang right after announcements, Living Hope. I can't, I can't, I literally can't sing it. I literally cannot sing the realities that I'm alive because the morning came. When the roaring lion said, the grave will have no claim on me. Such were some of us. Such was Justin Halder. Justin Halder, Pastor Justin Halder, was once declared known as unrighteous. Me. But... I was that way, but by faith and being washed and sanctified and declared righteous in the name of Jesus, I'm no longer unrighteous. These people in Corinth, they trusted Christ for their salvation, and they were declared righteous. The only hope that a person has is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
You may know somebody today who is working through some of these things. You may know somebody today who is struggling perhaps with same-sex attraction. Perhaps there's so, you know somebody who's struggling with you know, issues of identity and, and, and things of that nature. I want you to understand something. If God were to give you the opportunity to share truth with them and try to love on them, if, if they could just repress those feelings and get away from those, those ideas that they have that promote their confusion, but they've not been declared righteous, they're not in a good place. Behavioral modification is not the answer. Paul didn't say some of you were sexually immoral, but you quit having sex outside of marriage. Paul didn't say some of you were practicing homosexuality, but you quit. Paul didn't say some of you were drunkards, but you quit doing that. Paul said you were washed, you were renewed, and you, or you were sanctified, and you were justified by Jesus Christ. The needs of sinful mankind is salvation. So for those in Christ who respond to issues of sexuality in the same way that we respond to every other issue or that we ought to respond to every other issue in Scripture. And let me say this real quick. If you claim to be a believer and you're practicing some form of sexual sin, um, don't say anything about homosexuality, please. Because when we cherry pick, when we say, well, you know, the Bible talks about homosexuality, so this shouldn't happen, but we're having sex with our boyfriend or girlfriend on the weekends. Anybody see the problem there? Now I have no opportunity. The word of God's not the authority in my life. I'm not living according to a biblical worldview. You know what that, and, and those, I'm just going to tell you, you know, those kind of people, you know what they are? They're the word that the, 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 the media, and we read all the time we hear about it, but this is the place where I agree with it. They're a bigot. When the truth of God's word is for everybody but you, something's wrong. And the truth of God's word is for every arena of our life, not just the ones we do or don't agree with. So we respond to issues of sexuality the same way we respond to every other issue or that we ought to respond to every other issue with grace and truth and the invitation to trust Christ that you may be sanctified, that you may be justified. The eternal penalty and the present power of sin are only eradicated when a person trusts Christ for salvation. That's it. And so the focus must never be, as we've alluded to, simply changing what a person does or simply changing the way a person thinks. The focus must be, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, imploring people to trust Christ for salvation. You see, the church must continue to stand upon God's word as truth, but it must be done in a way that people see Christ for who he is, the Savior the spotless, sinless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The greatest issue we all face is our sinfulness, no matter what the manifestation of that sinfulness is. God's word is the authority, and the church needs to recommit to it as such. And then we need to deal rightly with authority and with individuals in such a way that the word of God is preserved, promoted, protected, and advanced. So I'd ask you this morning before we pray, are you ready, are you willing 
to commit to the word of God is the final authority and truth on all matters.